This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. Ah, uh, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hello again, my labial lovers. Welcome back to the lounge today for some enlightening chats about shameless parenting. Today we're going to chat about how to be your child's best relationship resource, sex educator and ally, which is pretty bloody tricky these days since most of us haven't really had this basis ourselves growing up and then we arrive at parenthood without the education or the resources or the comfortability with the topics that we need to provide it for our children. So we're going to talk about how we can break that cycle and start laying a really great foundation for our kids. And I'm also hoping we'll get time to chat about the role of shame in our lives and relationships, its impact on our health and well-being and how to tackle this. And I've got a really, really very well well-read, well-versed, experienced guest to um to join me today. I've got Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers, who's a licensed sex and gender feminist psychotherapist, best-selling author, researcher, emeriti professor, and media personality whose expertise spans things such as, and get ready because it's a lot, sex therapy, spiritual intimacy, parenting, medicine, and social justice. So known for exposing the impact of patriarchy and sexual shame on our ability to securely attach to our partners and instruct our children to attach to theirs, Dr. Seller's book, Sex, God and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy, has had a global impact. And her latest book, Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids and Heal Your Shame Too, was a new release bestseller in eight categories. She speaks throughout the world on how to heal and how to raise shame-free, relationally confident children. Wow, I'm so excited to chat with you, Tina. Thank you for joining me in the lounge. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Oh, I had a tricky time, like, uh, sort of honing in on what topics we'd cover and what questions I would ask you because, you know, I, I saw your kind of accolades and your areas of expertise and I was like, oh my God, I'd, I want to do like five episodes with this woman. <laughs> um, so I'll try to keep it, keep it under wraps. But, um, first, I guess I, 
yeah, I'm, I'm wondering a bit about your background. I don't know heaps about it, but I imagine that if you've written a book called Sex, God and the Conservative Church, then you probably have a fairly intimate experience and understanding of sexual shame and its impact on things like body image and relational and, and sexual health. So could you tell us a bit about how you came to be writing such a book and your yeah. perspective on how this sort of shame impacts our health and wellness? Yeah, such a good question. Um, so. I didn't grow up in that setting myself. I actually had the good fortune of growing up in a Swedish immigrant home that was very body and sex positive and had been for generations. And um, so I actually was naive enough to just think most people's families were like mine. And I was probably close to 30 before I realized Oh no, I'm the one that grew up in an odd family <laughs> in America anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I had by that point, I was teaching in a graduate level, um, uh, program for marriage and family therapists. So people that were going to be licensed as marriage and family therapists. And I taught the human sexuality class, which was a class mm-hmm. that you need for licensure. Only one, the class, um, in that whole, um, degree. But one of the things I had my students do is write their sexual autobiography in the class. Now, a lot of times people are like, Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine (laughs) doing that. But you know, if you really want to be a good therapist, you have to know where your stories begin and end, right? Mm -hmm. And where your client's stories begin and end. So you don't get them confused. And so given, that America has had very poor comprehensive sex education. And especially Mm -hmm. the last 45 years or so where we've had abstinence education, we really have not been setting people up at all. And so I thought, you know, these students, their sexual autobiographies or their narratives are not a narrative. They remember events, just Mm -hmm. random events, because there's been no continuity here at all. So I gave them like 60 or 80 questions and I said, I don't want you to answer every question, but I want you to look at the arc that these questions are creating and I want you to dive in and write enough so that you can see what legacy you've been living and whether that's the legacy you want to keep carrying forward in your life. Wow! So I started teaching this class in the early 90s and around the year 2000, I started to notice a dramatic shift in the tone of these papers. They started to just involve a lot of like self-hatred and disgust Mm -hmm. about when they reflected on what they thought about sexuality, what they felt regarding sexuality, what they did or didn't do regarding sexuality. And I wasn't sure what I was seeing at first because they also had an increased ignorance as to what was normative sort of sexual curiosity, sexual development over the lifespan, like Mm. poof, that had somehow gone. And um, so it took a couple of years of really asking lots of questions before I found out that what I was seeing was the first wave of students that got abstinence education in their Mm. schooling. And some of them were also involved in conservative religious communities or homes Mm. growing up as well which had made a pretty dramatic shift around 1980 in the States where it wasn't just don't have sex before you're married. It was don't think about sex. Don't Mm. want 
sex. Don't do any kind of intimate touch to yourself or with someone else, or it will ruin you, ruin your future and any future relationship and ruin your relationship with God. And so they were being taught this as early as age nine. And of course, believing that they should be able to do that, which is really like telling a child to stop breathing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so it just deeply sunk into their bodies as deep sexual shame. And, um, so I started to talk about it, started to write about it, started to research it. And it took 11 years to write Sex God in the Conservative Church, but I really wanted to understand, you know, how did this happen in America? Had the, the empire religion in America had Christianity always been sex negative or had it ever been sex positive? Mm. Was there anything anywhere on the Abrahamic line that was sex positive? And I found some amazing, beautiful stories that were just never brought forward. Mm. Um, I looked at the role capitalism and commercialism, materialism in the United States had played on in, in um, inviting people to feel badly about themselves. So how, what, how were we running our economy and on what kinds of principles and ideas? And then I developed a model for how you heal sexual shame and then threw in some ideas of how to integrate touch and non-touch practices that you could integrate. And I wrote it for clinicians, but I wrote it also for the patients, for clients. So it's just filled with tons of stories so people can find themselves in that book. Mm-hmm. And... um yeah, that's, that's how I came to get involved. I had been doing a ton of stuff in medicine prior to that. And this just took my heart and ran with it. And so I just made it something I, if I could learn everything I could about it. Then in 2017, the year the book came out, there was a grad student in, um, a PhD student who did research on what is sexual shame? And what is its impact? Because we did not have an operational definition of sexual shame yet in right. research. And her research was so stunning because the definition says what so many of us see in the work that we do, right? Mm-hmm. How visceral it is, how much it is in the bodies of people. And I'm happy to read that definition if you want me to just yeah. for your listeners, because it's Absolutely. really stunning, you know, how much it hurts people. When we do this from the age of children forward. And I'm often saying that in America, I think your first shame is sexual shame because we find our genitals, you know, by the time we're a year old or so, when we've got control of our hands and they land there, right? And we think that's a great day, but our caregivers don't always. And Mm -hmm. if we have a caregiver that is scared by that, has their own shame around that, then they yell or they slap our hand away, they get angry. And that kind of event will happen over and over and over again, because a child's Mm -hmm. not going to log in a memory that will stick until maybe around five, right? Right. So they're going to forget and they're going to do it again. Of course, you know, this is how kids get comfort, right? And and it's about connection and pleasure and we're hardwired for it. So of course kids are doing this, but just imagine that they're pre-verbal and then they're getting in trouble this way over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again before they're even holding on the memory. But then maybe they get in trouble for playing doctor when they're five and that one they remember, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first one that maybe they'll talk about when they're an adult. 
So the definition says sexual shame is a visceral feeling. So in my body, not Mm. just cognitively, in my body of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being. And it's a belief of being abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. So I don't know how you hurt somebody more, really. This feeling can be internalized. So it's in our insides, internalized, but it also manifests in interpersonal relationships. So it begins, like I said, between the child and someone else really early on, right? Interpersonal relationship having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. So when you think about the core places inside a relationship for creating connection, deep attachment with somebody, Mm -hmm. it's hitting every single one of those places. Mm -hmm. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan, like I said, with interactions, with interpersonal relationship. But then once culture and society begins to take an effect on us um, and it creates a subsequent critical self-appraisal. So that internal feedback loop that gets going where we internalize the criticism and then we see something in our life and we're like, see, see, I told you you're an awful person, right? It just plays over and over and over again, creates a feedback loop. And then it goes on to say, there is also fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make safety decisions. And it's related to sexual encounter. So the right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along with an internalized judgment towards one's own sexual desire. So the way I like to think about this is Peggy Ornstein wrote a book called Girls and Sex, where she interviewed 80 girls, 15 to 22. And she was finding these girls could feel confident and confident in every area of their life until they got ready to go out. Mm-hmm. And then they were putting down three, four and five shots of hard liquor because they didn't know if they could keep themselves safe or if they had the right to, right? And in her research, as well as the research of that this dis- definition came from, the majority of the people did not come from religious backgrounds. Only a very, very few did. So we see the breadth of sexual shame over all of culture hmm. and then a further layer on top of those people who've had sort of God, sort of that abusive power yeah. God put in there. Yeah. So it's really a powerful way to hurt people. And it honestly has broken my heart. And I'm like, we need to talk about this, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. A hundred percent. That's exactly why I'm in this field as well. And when you were reading that definition, I was just like having flushes of like goosebumps because I was like, oh, my God, I could not have articulated it more exquisitely. Like that was so accurate. I I had that exact experience, every single thing described in that definition is an experience that resonates with me and that I was living for years of my life, which is the whole reason I'm in this line of work now. And that totally visceral, all-consuming, it's it permeates everything, you know, like the impact it has on your health, your well-being, your identity, your expression, your creativity, your like self-worth, you know, and then of course like relationships with other people and how you move in the world. And 
it is unbelievably damaging when we are carrying around just layers upon layers upon layers of sexual shame and intergenerational sexual shame and like I can't yeah I could not have done a better job of that I'm gonna have to get you to send that that to me because um yeah I'd love to read her research far out it's big stuff isn't it yes it's huge it's huge and it's why I think it's so important that we're talking about it because while its impact is uh, so huge, like you were saying, permeates so many areas of our life, it also is so common that we're almost not seeing it. We're blaming ourselves, right? And yep. it's like, sweet pea, you were marinated in this. You yeah. couldn't help but feel this. Of course, mm-hmm. it's not you. It's not you, you know? But as you know, the work to heal is work. Like yeah. it doesn't, we didn't get this overnight. It doesn't go away overnight, right? We have to work really hard mm-hmm. to sort of retrain our brain and our body. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, it's a major time and it took me years. And when I started on the journey, there were a lot less resources and I'm not really, a, I'm a bit behind the eight ball for someone my age. I'm not really a kid of the internet. Like I didn't, you know, get around the the apps and the forums and and know how to research things or find things online. So, you know, back when I was starting out, it was really just like finding workshops or trainings or happening upon someone that I could actually just have a conversation with and just bit by bit by bit start to unpick and unhook from that shame. Um, And it is, it's so much work and it's tricky because we, it's so normalized. It's just infiltrated everything everywhere we're just walking around functioning that is our baseline we don't think that we can have anything better or that we deserve anything different we don't know it's possible we don't dare hope and then to add to that we're so um we're so isolated because we think we're the only ones having that experience and we're weird and not like abnormal and broken and it's way too dangerous and risky to share that with someone because then they might confirm the fact that you're weird and abnormal and broken so a lot of people are just living this you know this this quite in my opinion just like the most unsatisfactory baseline of self-worth and confidence and pleasure, which mm-hmm. I now know like what's possible. So I'm just like, well, I could never imagine going back there. I can't believe I just, I was resigned to live my life like that at, at a certain yeah. point until it just got so bad that I had to deal with it. But um, yeah, it's just so sad that we're, we're kind of just accepting that and, you know, it's great that there's more and more resources and more and more conversations happening but then there's this kind of uh, instant gratification, quick fix oriented, quite quite sort of like solution goal oriented mindset in culture. And so I'll often get clients that come in with a lifetime of trauma and sexual shame and wounds and they just want me to fix them in one session. And I'm like, babe, (laughs) that's just not going to happen. It is not possible. It would be dangerous for me to try. Like, you know, it's a, it is work. And so that's, that's the other hurdle is like, you know, once you know there's resources and you can access them, it's uncomfortable and it takes time and commitment. So there's a fair few hurdles in the way, but you know, just, Mm -hmm. just to make sure everyone's aware, I, fully advocate for taking the time and doing the work and spending the right. you know resources because it's so worth it it's so worth mm-hmm. it to be on the other side of that mm-hmm. absolutely you know i think it's it's like people have been under a weighted blanket their whole life and so they only know what it feels like 
to move through the world under a weighted blanket. But as you start to lift sexual shame off of you, Mm. you realize that there is such a feeling of freedom and liberation and Mm. knowledge, right? You now know you're not caught in mythology anymore, right? And, Mm. and so now you're, you're free to live and you're not weighted down any longer. And it feels entirely different. And you're like, Oh, I wish I could have known what this felt like. Maybe I would have started the process a little sooner, you know, because it's entirely different to live in a free, liberated, aware, knowledgeable space, you know, than under the stuff that that people are cloaked in. Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now, back to the episode. Totally. And it just takes so much energy to exist like that. Like it's draining. I, I was thinking, I was almost doing a bit of an audit or a bit of a uh, stock take about the things that I, that used to take up my headspace and drain my energy and make me feel crappy. And yeah. the list was just never ending. And that was just in like, you know, a little snapshot of me getting ready to go out or go on a date the amount of things that I had going on in my head that I was insecure about, that I was terrified of, that I had to navigate and, you know, all of the <laughs> the beauty expectations that I felt like I had to adhere to. So the, the getting ready process in itself was time consuming and draining and then also anxiety provoking and shit for my self-esteem. So by the time I rocked up to the date, already exhausted and then I had to navigate all of the, you know, and I was just thinking about that the other day going, oh my God, I just can't believe I lived like that. I just, I don't know how I did it. Um, And I guess that's why I'm very, I don't have children, but I'm very passionate about not passing that down to our kids and, you know, not, not giving them this legacy of a lifetime of work that they have to do. Like maybe we can just help, help shortcut that for them, even though for us, we've still got to do the work. But for the kids, maybe we can, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. M- create a different different narrative from the get-go, um, ideally, yeah. so that they're not lumped with, you know, trying to undo the damage in adulthood. Um, right. And you can. That's what's exciting. You absolutely yeah. can. And you can do it in one generation. Amazing. You know, the book Shameless Parenting came about because I had so many people who had read the first book who said, I know I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me, but I have no idea what to do. I just know I feel all these feelings, but I keep my mouth shut because I don't want to pass on the shame, but I don't know what to do. What, what am I supposed to do? And so shameless parenting was put together. I'm like, I got you. I've been teaching physicians and therapists (laughs) this forever, you know, and I broke it down birth to two two to four, four to six, six to eight, up to 18. And I said, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to write about and talk about what are the typical emotional tasks kids at that 
age frame are trying to accomplish, you know, Mm -hmm. intrinsic to them. What are the behavioral tasks they're trying to accomplish? What are the sensual body and sort of sexual curiosities that a child might have at that age? Mm-hmm. How might that manifest? What are typical ways that manifests? And then I had whole sections of how do you imagine it'll be for you when your child does X or Y, right? Or Z, does these mm. things. If you can feel in you a part of you that catches your breath or feels afraid, that just take a deep breath because mm. that's just your body indicator that you didn't get what you needed yeah. at that age. You got shame instead. And let's talk about what that is. What is that fear? What is that shame saying? And now let's imagine, because at the end of every little chapter I have, here's the top books and the top resources, the top websites for Mm -hmm. kids and for parents. Um, Let's imagine you got this instead. How do you imagine that might've been for you as a two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, whatever? And then they do with all kinds of writing as a way to prepare themselves and get clear so that they can then provide for their child what they need. And I give this list of those things. And, and I'm like, you don't have to have it all figured out. You just need to be two years ahead of your kiddo. That's all just two (laughs) years. And if you do that, you'll be healing yourself. You'll be, you'll be giving them something you never got, but would have loved to have gotten. And in the end, your child's default will be set towards sexual health, relationship mm. health, understanding what's exploitation and what isn't, mm. knowing how to have body autonomy, what that you're in charge of your own body, that other people are in charge of their, knowing what consent is, how to give it, how to take it back, you know, all of mm. these things, you know, how to keep yourself safe on the internet, just all kinds of things, you know, and you will have given your child it in bite-sized kinds of ways and you never will have done this talk. What you will have done is 100 one-minute talks or a thousand one-minute talks through each different year and it will match where your child is naturally anyway. So it will, your child will see you as a safe person to talk to about anything because you could talk to them about the stuff that other parents can't, right? Mm. You're just, you're non-reactive because you can go, Oh, this is my child's job description that they do this right now, you know, as opposed to take it personally or think they've done something wrong. Oh no, that's what little ones that age or 13 year olds do. And so you, they just need your guidance and love Mm -hmm. and support, you know? So anyway, yeah, that's how that one got written. Yeah. Oh, I can literally hear everyone pausing the podcast, jumping online and buying your book right now. Like that's what (laughs) I'd be doing if I wasn't recording right now. I love this stuff. I'm fascinated by it. I can't wait to be a parent and just absolutely nail it at this stuff. Cause like, yes, (laughs) it's so fun too. I mean, that's just it. People feel such fear when they've been shamed, but when you get a chance to sort of Mm. deal with your own shame a bit and then do this stuff for your kids who you're learning alongside Mm. of them, it's so darn fun because their curiosity is so pure, you know, and you're just like, Oh, look at the fun we're having. I missed that too. And my parents missed that too, that fun. They were just in a scared place and I got all their fear and Mm. shame. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it really does transform like your family tree in that generation. Yeah. And it's different from then on out. I can imagine it would just be like almost a bit of a, a final piece of, of healing as well for the parent. Like I know for me, I've, I've pretty much, you know, I'm, I'm in a really good place with all of the yeah. sexual shame stuff now, but I, I still can't wait. You know how parents talk about how they learn so much from their kids and their kids yeah. are their greatest teachers. Yeah. Like when you hear a child talking about or reflecting on or asking questions about these topics, like their innocence and their curiosity, like that in itself would be so healing and transformative for the parent to kind of bask in as well. I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they're able to because they're learning how to self-soothe. They're learning Mm -hmm. how to go, Oh, that's just my shame from when I was a kid that because I didn't get this. It's not fast. And I'm not, you know, and then they're able to just show up for their Mm -hmm. kiddo and have a completely Mm -hmm. different experience. So it does it, it helps the kid, but it also helps heal them too and free them, you know? So it's it's a pretty lovely process to watch people yeah. kind of reparent themselves at the same time that they're yeah. walking alongside a little one, you know. Yeah. And I've yeah. had lots of people contact me and say, I don't have kids, um, or I'm not sure I'm going to have kids, but this book has been so helpful for me to see mm. I was normal all along, yeah. you know, and I just needed a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And now I know, now I know what I should have gotten. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I was normal. Now I know how the arc of development goes. And it feels so good to see that and to see myself yeah. in a new way, you know, which that's been yeah. really fun to hear from people too. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It's such a, I'm always advocating for people who don't have children or never intend to have children to still learn about this stuff for themselves. But, you know, just to be part of the community and be, because it's like, I used to work in early learning and I, I worked at a kinder as an educator mm-hmm. for years. And, um, and you would kind of hear about, and, and I nannied. So I was like part of these families. And no matter yes. how great of a job they were doing in the home, that child could still go to a friend's house or go to kinder and maybe one of the other educators would catch them touching their genitals and would react in a, in a damaging way. And it's like, right. if you don't have kids yourself, you will still probably come into contact with children. And it's sure. really great to like know this stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask about the, yeah, the sort of like key um, phases or developmental stages and, and at what age is it appropriate to discuss what kinds of things. Um, but first, before we get into that, I'd love to do the segment Get Pregnant and Die. Don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise. And this is where I ask my guests for a story or anecdote from their, you know, their journey, their sex education. Maybe it was at school, maybe in the family, some kind of, um, little, little share about your sex ed. Maybe something you wanted to, um, learn more about that you didn't or a way that it failed you. I mean, it sounds like your family was quite unique in the way that they approached sex ed. So I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like I have so many stories that are dear to me, you mm-hmm. know, um, cause it, it didn't matter if I was talking to my 
mom or my dad or my grandparents or my great aunts and uncles or my uncle. I mean, any, anybody, because they, they had all sort of grown up with this. And, um, and so, and again, like I just couldn't appreciate how, how typical it was for my family, but atypical for others. And, and there was also a lot of joking, like, my grandmother wore a pink bikini her whole life and she lived to 92 and she would wear shorty <laughs> 90s. Like everyone had bodies and bodies were good, right? It's just the way it was. So, so I can remember one time I was getting ready to go out on a date and I was maybe 16 or something like that. And I was dating some, you know, football player or something. And my dad says to me, so I want to make sure you know what a guy is saying to you when he says he wants to touch your pec, your pec muscles, pectoralis major, your pecs. So, yeah. your pecs. so I knew what yeah. he was talking about. And I said, Oh brother, dad, of course I know exactly what he, he goes, well, I just want to make sure you've got that figured out because I don't want you, you know, getting fooled by some hot shot guy, you know, I'm like dad got it. Right. I have so many stories like that where he would just like, think of something from when he was growing up or whatever, you know, and then he would just like, Hey, what make sure what, you know, like this, you know, and, um, it, it, it was just great to have a relationship like that. And I can remember being in college and I wanted to go camping with a bunch of people from college and I had a boyfriend and I went to my dad and I'm like, I need camping gear to take on this. I need like tent and, and suitcases and, and, you know, my boyfriend and I were going to go together and my dad's like, great, let me help you get it. And just make sure that you're safe and you know, who's around you, you know, but it was like no big deal because I'd grown up with talking about these things, you know? Yeah. And so I just already knew that he trusted my decision-making and oh, yeah, yeah, just a really different, but also fun and funny and yeah. um, very loving and endearing. You know, that so, is so yeah. special. Oh my God. Yeah. I, yeah, wow. It's very, very rare that I get a story like that on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So it's right. really cool to hear. That sounds so special and, yeah, yeah, like such a valuable upbringing. Like, I can't even imagine what that would have been like to just have it be yeah. such a comfortable, because it's like, you know, we, and you kind of touched on this about, it's, it's, it's really more um, beneficial to be having the conversations really organically hundreds mm -hmm. of times when it comes up, when someone asks a question, when it, it's relevant and yeah. contextual rather than yeah. this like trope of like, we're having the talk and we're sitting right. you down in the living room when you've already <laughs> definitely watched heaps of porn by now and you're a teenager and it's way too late to be having the birds and the bees talk, but we're going to do it and it's going to be awkward. And it's like, <laughs> fuck that, you know? Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet when I would ask my mom about growing up or watching my grandparents talk to her or whatever, I could see that this had been going on, you know, but it's important to understand that Holland, um, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, mm -hmm. um, those countries, those Nordic countries have had comprehensive sex medically yeah. accurate sex education for the since the 1940s or so and wow. it starts in preschool and goes every single year wow. and sometimes in different subjects 
all the way through their learning. And so it's, you know, you ask yourself, well, what do five-year-olds want to learn about, need to learn about, right? Well, they need to know how to label things in their life and their world and their bodies. They need to know how that they have, that they're in charge of their own body. They need to know how to ask permission. So consent, right? They need to learn about those things. They need to know what it means to be a good friend and what not a good friend is, you know? And so you're just hitting on the development, the relational life development that's naturally occurring. And you're just meeting them right there with that little piece, you know? And, and you just build on that because as their life becomes more complex and their thinking becomes more complex, then your conversations do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I loved what you said about, you know, you don't have to know it all and be an expert. You just have to be like two years in front of them and and it's okay to be learning on the job as you go. And, you know, like a really common question that I, I get is what age do I start talking to my children about sex? Like what's appropriate? Is it going to traumatize them if I bring stuff up when they're too young? Do I wait until they ask questions and then I'm open to answering them, but I don't bring, you know, so are there any like, practical kind of tips or and I know like you've got a whole book about this so you don't have right. to go into every single stage people can go buy yeah. the bloody book um yeah. as I'm sure they will but yeah is yes. there is there like a bit of a framework you can give us about the different stages and when to start and how to start yeah. talking about this in the home yeah well and first remember that it's not always sex right mm-hmm. you're not always starting there um and the nice thing is is there are tons of great books picture books for kids all kinds of books you don't have to invent this on your own yeah you know and I make suggestions on different ones I'd have sitting around if I had a three-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or whatever and and so you can you can get a help a little bit along the way with this but it's really about paying attention to what is your particular child curious about in their life and in their world right Mm -hmm. Um, and then matching it there so Sometimes they're going to be talking about friends and friendships, and that can look a particular way at six or eight or 10 or 12. And so you're going to go into it there. Well, tell me more. What happened? What Mm -hmm. felt fair? Or did something feel unfair with that? How would you wish you would have behaved? Or how would you have wanted that person to behave with you or whatever? What were you comfortable with? What weren't you comfortable with? You know, helping them think about whatever it is that they're thinking Kids are often going to bring it to you if you're paying attention. So you're sitting with your three-year-old on the couch and watching a show and they grab a stuffed animal and their hand goes inside their pants. Okay. They are very happy about having a part of their body that brings them a sense of pleasure, right? A sense of connection, a sense of comfort, right? If they haven't had that explained to them, say, that's such a wonderful part of your body. I'm glad that you've discovered it. We call it a penis or we call it a clitoris. It's part of your vulva. It's a wonderful part. When they hit about three or so, you start talking about privacy, privacy and private parts of our body. And in our culture, when we want to touch the private parts of our body, which are wonderful things, we use the bathroom or our bedroom. And even we do that. Even the grownups in the family do that, right? And But you're going to say that many times from three to four, because it's not till about four that they start to really get it. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go. And then just the other day, I had somebody say to me, I felt so happy when I had one of my kids say, I'm going to my room now because I want to touch my penis. 
You know? It's like, yes, isn't that delightful? Right? It's so yeah. great. And so you're, you're listening and you're watching around where are they learning and you're coming in just like you are with anything and you're teaching about that next piece, right? You know, it could be, we can be naked inside our home, but when we go outside, we put clothes on. We make sure we have clothes on. Or yes, you can be naked in the backyard. That's fine. But when we go out in the front yard, we all put clothes on. You know, whatever it is. And you can say, this is just because the culture we live in is like this. Probably mm-hmm. if we were in a different culture, we might have different rules, you know. So you're just kind of giving them those little snippets as they go. And um, so really a lot of our questions about when, what comes from our fear right? Comes from our shame, right? And as soon as we start learning that, oh, it's really typical for kids to bring this up or this, or start to notice this at this age, then we can start practicing in our mind. How do I want to do that? You know, Mm -hmm. kids will start playing, you know, being curious about other people's body about five, Mm -hmm. really typical five, six, right in there. And so, yeah, if you walk in and you've got two five-year-olds or six-year-olds that are playing and pants are down. You can be like, were you guys curious about each other's bodies? That's really common to be curious. Let's go ahead and put our clothes on and we'll go play outside or whatever. You know, it's just, you normalize it. You give them the information that they need and then you help them to move on to the next thing or, you know, answer other questions or whatever. But it, it really is about paying attention and knowing what I call is developmentally common so that when they do whatever they do, you're like, yep, that's in their job description mm-hmm. to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to get mad, but they might need some guidance and instruction about that. Right. Yeah. So the other day I was staffing a case and somebody was talking about how this, a 16 year old girl had a, she had a a nice car and she had a friend at school, a guy who said, Oh, let's go for a drive. We go for a drive. And then he tries to talk her into doing something that's slightly illegal. And so she gets terrified. You know, I think the police were called. I can't remember. And the father wanted to disown her. And I was talking to the therapist who was seeing the girl and what was going to see the father and the, and the daughter. And um, I said, it'll be important to help him remember what 16 year olds are like 16 year olds and 17 year olds and 18. They learn through experience. That's the Mm -hmm. job description. If we were meant to learn, you know, outside of experience, then our prefrontal lobe would be done baking before we're 28 (laughs) and it's not right. And so let's just remember that. Yes, she made a mistake, but it's a mistake that can be turned into a learning if she just asks herself some questions and she needs a patient parent to say, wow, babe, that sounds like that was scary. Mm. What, what is the learnings you're pulling from that now that might change the way you respond next time? Just help them out, right? Help them go through 16. Okay. And 17. Mm. Okay. And not take it personally. Again, it comes from shame when you take that and fear often when you take it personally that your kids just being kid 16 or whatever yeah absolutely yeah and most of the time I mean I remember when I was a teenager and I would mess up or do something and then I would freak out because you know I'd get in trouble or there'd be some consequence and I definitely didn't need the double whammy of like a parent 
getting at me about it. I was already feeling like, oh my God, I'm never doing that again. Holy shit, that yeah. was way too scary. And I'm I'm so anxious. I can't handle this. I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what this therapist said. She said, this poor little 16-year-old is so hard on herself right now. The last mm-hmm. thing she needs is somebody else hard on her. And I'm like, and that's yeah. really important for him to notice that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she's already punishing herself. Yeah. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab. And the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. So are there any kind of um, big no-nos that you want to make sure parents refrain from doing or like really common mistakes or misconceptions that, that we could discourage or debunk? Because I feel like, yeah, there's there's things that we should be encouraging them to do more of, but then there's also stuff that, yeah, might just happen automatically. Their parents did it. They've always done it. Um, that are like big, big no-nos that you want to kind of draw people's attention to. Yeah. So. First, overreacting or reacting in big ways because it's important to remember that your child will always be, or at least for a really long time into their adulthood, more sensitive to your disapproval. Yeah. Than you even think they are, you know? And so man, try to manage your reactivity and emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um, It helps to know what is developmentally typical. So you're not expecting your child to be a 30-year-old when they're in their adolescence, right? Because that too, expecting what is beyond their capacity to do is going to discourage them and make them feel like they're not good enough, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's important to know that line of this, this is the line of growth for them. And anything beyond that, they're going to need some of my support around. And anything less than that, they don't need me solving the problem for them. They can solve it for themselves. And I can say, wow, problem. I bet you have ideas on how you want to solve that. That's how we build confidence. 
in them Mm. is by not doing for them what they are capable of doing for themselves. Mm. Right. That's called caretaking and not loving. Loving Mm. is staying close to where that edge of your child's learning is, which is again about paying really close attention because people who have more than one child know every child isn't exactly the same. Right. And so you kind of got to know what that line is for that one. Um, what else? I think there's a, there's a point where some children, uh, and, and this you might not see till adolescence, but you know, I've talked to people where they're like, this one child of mine wants to know everything about everything and they are down for hearing it all. And then this other one, just can't stand it when I bring up even talking about periods or talk about what it's like. They just can't. They're like, mom, just stop. You know, they can't handle it. And so try to work with the way that your child is. So if you have one that's like, I don't want to hear about it. If there's something that's important that you do want to teach them, then preempt it a little bit and say, I got something that I want to teach you or tell you about. It might be uncomfortable. I'm going to say it in less than 45 seconds. So all you got to do is stomach this for 45 seconds. Can you do that? You know, so you preempt it a little bit because what I know about when people become adults, they're almost always grateful that if they had a parent that was trying to instruct them along the way, by the time they're an adult, they're like, oh, I'm so glad that you were brave enough to do that. And I know I didn't make it easy on you, but I'm really glad that you did. So just know that just because they're uncomfortable doesn't mean you completely be quiet. But you say, I recognize this in you. I see this and I'm going to honor this. And I'm still going to tell you this, but I'm going to do it really quickly. Is that yeah. okay? You know, yeah. so That's great and then other kids, yeah, I think other, other kids will be like, yes, they want to hear some stories from your past, but they don't want to hear anything sort of deeply graphic, right? Cause that mm-hmm. can be really hard for them to take it in. So you want to, say, well, I I learned something similar one time when I did X and Y, but we're giving the overview of the story. And if they want to know more, you can always say, if you have other questions, please feel free to ask me. I'm happy to answer them, but I also don't want to give you too much that feels overwhelming Mm. or whatever. And let them tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So not, not oversharing and kind of, cause there's, there is, you know, there's got to be a sort of boundary where things are appropriate and helpful and educational and then maybe just not okay. Like where, how do you know, is that just different for every parent child dynamic or like, do you have some guidelines for that sort of thing? Well, I think kids for the most part don't want to know about you and your sex life. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they don't want to know that kind of thing. They don't want to know those kinds of details, but you can again, speak on what you've been learning, you know, what you learned over time to really value and appreciate about being cared for well or loved well or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, um, sometimes people freak out about what if my child walks in on me Mm -hmm. all again, non-reactive can say, Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to put the sign on our door. What I said, what we're playing or whatever your sign says, you know, um, just please close the door when you go and remember to knock when you come back in, just like I try to remember to knock, you know, and so again, be fairly non reactive mm-hmm. and just matter of fact, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are we thinking like ideally throughout their childhood, it's been, it's been already normalized that, you know, 
either they or like us as parents sometimes go into the room and maybe have a little sign on the door and that means we're having some intimate time with ourselves or with a partner like is that the the goal that it's kind of normalized that mum and dad do go into you know the room and maybe you hear some things and they're just playing and enjoying themselves Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah in fact there was some really good research on children's cognitive what helps them learn their cognitive capacities by a guy named John Medina out of the University of Washington in Seattle and what he found when he looked at all the different factors that help children learn versus stuff that interrupt their learning he found that kids whose home life is loving and stable end up learning best and the way I like to think about it is if kids come home and there is a relationship there and that relationship is loving and it it's taking care of itself, right? Mm-hmm. You can see it. Maybe they're affectionate. Maybe they kiss, maybe what, whatever. Then the child feels like they're fine. These adults in my life, therefore I am fine. And it's yeah. like a white noise machine gets turned down to zero. And so mm-hmm. nothing now is standing in the way of their learning. But when the people don't look like they're fine, maybe there's tension they can feel or anger they can feel or distance they can feel, then it's like their white noise machine goes up and it interrupts their ability to learn, right? So it's really good for kids to see that there's an adult, if there is adult relationship in the in the home, that that, that adult relationship is taking care of itself, mm-hmm. right? It's going yeah. out on dates. It's doing whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, because that gives children the confidence and the reassurance yeah that life is okay. Life is okay. Yeah. My my foundation is stable. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful. Well, before I I'd love to hear about your model, your mess model for creating healing in terms of shame. Yeah. But can we do TMI? I'd love to hear a sure. TMI story from you. <laughs> TMI, Ah, TMI. (laughs) So one thought I had. So growing up, you can imagine I have, I have four children, um, two stepkids and two biological kids, and they are now all in their thirties. And, um, so growing up with a sex educator, I was a single parent for nine years in the middle of their adolescence and leading into their uh, adulthood. The, the kids would have their friends would come over all the time, you know, and I would just, because we talked, we were this way, we talked about things as it would come up, you know? And so I would say something and I would, you know, like, well, the clitoris is a great part of your body. I mean, I don't know something, you know, yeah, and yeah. one of them would say, mom, you're stepping over the line again. That's the line. And you just stepped over it, you know, <laughs> because I was so like, I'd talk about all kinds of things and they were always like, setting me straight, like, oh, mom, just, I know that you're comfortable, but our friends are not as comfortable as we all are. (laughs) So like, I don't know, when I think of TMI, I think of how I've been told, oh, mom, just, you know, bring it back a little bit. And I was always grateful that they said that, you know, and that they felt comfortable to say that. Um, But it also was something that we just all laughed about all the time. Totally. I bet. Did you ever have any issues with other kids' parents saying, hey, I'm not comfortable with you talking about these topics around my children or getting weird about the fact that you were so open about those topics? Not as much as I probably 
would have expected <laughs> it to be. But I can remember one time we were out, like we're a family that goes camping a lot in the summer. And so we were gone camping and I had had, we, we do it with lots of families. And one family had um, young adolescent girls and adolescent girl cousins Right. Mm-hmm. And then I had a, I had a girl too. And the girls all, they were probably 14. They all wanted to go skinny dipping. And I thought, I'm the one, I'm the aunt or I'm the, I'm the <laughs> one that will take you skinny dipping and make sure you guys are safe. You know? And so I came back and I'm like, I think some of your parents might not be super happy about this, but they can come talk to me about it. You know, because it was like, where else are they going to be safe enough Hardly. to do that? You know, we are in a remote camping area and what a great place for you to, you know, kind of sow a little oats and do something a little daring, but be completely safe, you know? And so I was like, okay, we'll do it. And if anybody wants to come talk to me about it, I said, but they'll know if course Tina did that, you know? (laughs) So, so yeah, you know, they're, but not, you know, really not as much as, as you would have thought. And, and actually my kids took over as sex educators for their friends. Yeah. You know, a lot. Yeah. 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 So, and that went way on into their adulthood. Yeah. Amazing. You, you're like the original sex education, you know, that show that's just so (laughs) popular. (laughs) Yeah. That's so awesome. All right. So just before we wrap up, I'd love to get the rundown on. Yeah, your model for healing sexual shame. And I know it's very complex and it's not just like a, yep, step one, step two. But if you could give us a bit of an idea about where to start with that, that would be really helpful. Well, and that's a good way to put it because I really think of it as the place to start. It's not going to heal, you know, like it's not a somatic process. So you're going to probably still have work to do inside your body, right? In healing your body from the trauma of what you went through when somebody basically stole your developing sexuality away from you, you know, in essence. But I think about the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame as four sort of key areas that you're going to keep working on over and over again. And the first one is it's frame, name, claim, and shame, frame, name, claim, and aim. Okay. So frame is get yourself a scaffolding or a frame of good sex education. There's all kinds of fabulous books out there. I mean, shameless parenting will walk you through, you know, 30 or 40 from picture books all the way through, but just get yourself that education so that you can get clear about what was a myth that you grew up with and what's actually truth, right? And there's going to be a lot of shame that's going to drip off as you go, Oh, I was normal or, oh, that's what that is or, oh, whatever, you know, so that's frame. Name is tell your story to someone, right? So find an empathic, compassionate other, a friend, a therapist, someone who can hear what it was like for you to grow up in your particular family, community, whatever kind of cultural environment that you were in. And if you can do this with a group of friends that we do do it with each other, what you're going to find is you were not alone, that the vast majority of people, I would say in the, in the States is anywhere from 90 to 95% of people grow up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming. You're not alone. You were not alone. I know you felt alone. 
but you were not alone. And so knowing that, hearing from other people, having your story received with compassion and empathy helps the shame begin to disappear a bit, you know? The claim is claim your body as good. I don't care what it's like. If you get up in the morning and you're not in pain, that is a good body. And remember that heredity shapes your body shape more than anything else does, right? There are some people whose heredity, they will always be tall and thin. That's how they'll be. Or they will be shorter in stature and wider in stature. That's how their people are, you know? So your heredity is going to shape how you are. And we are meant to be diverse. Yeah. So what our particular, if you run, if you live in a country that runs its economy on making people feel badly about themselves, what they look like, what they have and what they don't have, then you Mm. will grow up feeling badly about yourself, what you have and what you don't have. In the States, research shows that 50% of six-year-old girls, two-thirds of nine-year-olds, 90% of 15-year-old girls are all modifying their diets. So little girls know at six that they're not good enough. If they've been exposed to media, right? So it is doing us no favors at all. So we've got to take the matters into our own hands. And be like, no, I have, I refuse to go to my deathbed not seeing what a good body I had. It was the pen I wrote the poetry of my life with. I'm going to be grateful for it no matter how it is. Right. But again, lots of work to do that because we've been marinating in something very different. When you do those three things over and over and over again, you get your education, the frame, name, you tell your story, claim, you claim your body as you're doing all three of those. What you're going to start to do is aim for a whole new brand new legacy for yourself and for anybody who comes in your life and gets shaped by you. You're going to be shaping it to be different from there on out. So it's so worth it that you do these things over and over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But do appreciate that sexual shame is a type of trauma. It's a complex trauma and Mm -hmm. that it's in it. And sometimes people have symptoms very similar to somebody who was sexually abused as a child, because in essence, their developing sexuality was hurt, right? Yeah. And so be patient with yourself, love up on yourself, and it will get better in time. Oh, my God, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, really beautiful and well articulated. And just, yeah, epic. I love, love what you're doing. It's so important, so inspiring. And, and and I really agree with, I think it breaks my heart when people are like, oh, nothing, nothing, I haven't actually had any like sexual trauma or nothing too bad's happened to me. But then I hear about their experience and I'm like, well, that is a form of complex trauma, you know, like I, I used to have boyfriends that were kind of like, like totally convinced that something must have happened to me physically. I must have been molested or raped. They were like, look, like the way that, you know, your like insecurities and fears and and behaviors are presenting, like, are you sure nothing happened to you? Are you sure you weren't interfered with? And I'm like, well, not that I can remember, but for me, I, I really think that the the intensity of the sexual shame was trauma enough Absolutely. to then play out like that and, and yeah, impact Absolutely. me. Mm-hmm. So totally, totally back that. 
Um, hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. (laughs) You can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. And um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I, there's a million and one other things I'd love to chat with you about. I think I'd, I'll have to get you back on for a, another episode if you're open to it. But sure, for now, course, love to. <laughs> yay. Um, amazing. Well, for now, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Um, I'm going to put a link in the Labia Lounge Facebook group to a few handouts that you've got um, for sex relationship and child development. And you've got Great. a 25% discount that you've offered us. Um, is there, you know, any parting words or somewhere you want to send people to follow your work? Um, yeah. Yeah. So you can follow my work at, um, Dr. Tina Shameless on Instagram, Mm -hmm. or, um, I run an institute that trains therapists and coaches and doctors and educators and clergy in sexual health and understanding your sexual mm-hmm. biases because we don't get enough of that in school. And I think it really helps yeah. us be better providers in the world. So mm-hmm. that is called the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. And the website is N-W-I-O-I, like Northwest Institute on Intimacy. Mm-hmm. And the um, Instagram is N-W Institute on Intimacy. And so you can follow okay. us there. Um, yeah. And then my website is just my name, Tina Shermersellers.com. And mm-hmm. let's see the other thing that I'm involved in it, which is a little bit newer is I'm doing a lot of work around the role that psychedelics are going to play in mm-hmm. healing religious sexual shame and sexual shame. So I want to do an work episode around on that. that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We can. And, <laughs> um, and I am starting a, um, community group for therapists and physicians who work in that space to create a safety holding environment for them while this is rolling out for the next decade. Mm. And so that website is called Inanarising, I-N-A-N-N-A-R-I-S-I-N-G dot org. And Beautiful. that's where we're, we're going to enter into that space because I think mm. we have a, 
chance to do a lot of healing yeah. in our future yeah. with some of those medicines. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. I'll put those links in the show notes. And I did, I did have, you know, a few questions of if we had time for the, the psychedelic side of things, but I would love to do an episode exclusively on that. I, um, I've had Charlie, ah, oh, what's his last name? Oh. I can't believe I've forgotten it right now. Anyway, I did an episode on MDMA and psychedelics in couples therapy. Um, oh, but great. I'd love to do more, more stuff on that. Charlie Winninger. Yeah. Anyway, he's got a book yeah. called, um, Oh my God, I can't remember the book either. Oh, worst podcast host. Um, yeah, something about okay. ecstasy. Anyway, anyway. Oh, um, great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, well, there'll be a lot of great conversations to have as things are unfolding mm-hmm. over the next year or two. Mm, totally all right thank you so much tina it's been an absolute dream talking to you oh you're so welcome it's been so fun to be here Freya. i really appreciate you having me thanks so much amazing see you later everyone and that's it darling hearts thank you for stopping by the labia lounge your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double l action next time and in the meantime if you'd be a dear and subscribe share this episode or leave a review on itunes then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that my dear is a downright act of sex positive feminist activism And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.